Idly Hodly Podcast Arenos. I've got another interview for you this week with cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, writer, trainer, and ancient philosophy expert, Donald Robertson. Uh, Donald is the author of six books, including How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And he is just an all-around absolute wizard. He is truly a stoic sage and i really enjoyed speaking with him and his work in general i mean if you're looking for a philosophy of life if you're looking for some straightforward deep thinking that's philosophical and psychological you have to check donald out you have to go and buy one of his books right now go and do it man really you uh it's just it's the type of wisdom that could benefit everybody at the moment and there's i don't know one person that couldn't do with a bit of a tune-up after this outrageous period of time that we've all been through that has been so taxing for everybody so it if you're going to read some self-help donald is the guy to go to i don't know if you classify it as self-help but it's fucking helpful all right so i know you're gonna like it in this podcast we talk about cbt we talk about stoicism we talk about mental health we talk about hedonism young people uh trends in our culture that are bullshit and how they could be better with a bit of ancient wisdom in them talk about the early roots of christianity about martial arts about martial philosophy and really get into the weeds with it it's very amazing to talk to a guy with donald's level of experience and insight and i know you're going to enjoy this conversation and hopefully it'll spark an interest in stoicism and cbt for you so without further ado here's the interview but actually just finished reading the philosophy of cognitive behavioral therapy about mm-hmm. 20 minutes ago mm-hmm. <laughs> it got to the end of it and yeah i really really loved it i loved how to think like a roman emperor as well but i really like the depth of the philosophy of cbt because i never i don't know cbt always seemed like this very scientific form of therapy i never related it to anything philosophical i wonder like yeah how did you transition from philosophy to cbt i mean what was that like for you? Um, yeah, because I, I did philosophy first. Um, mm. I, I started training in psychotherapy like as soon as I finished my first degree in philosophy. And then I did a master's degree at Sheffield uh, at an interdisciplinary centre that uh, was for philosophy, sociology, and uh, psychotherapy. Um, so I kind of trained for a couple of years at master's level and integrative mm. uh, studies. So, uh, yeah, like at first I was trying to combine existential philosophy with psychoanalysis. And then I, I, yeah. I kind of realized that was a bad idea. Like, Isn't there a brand of psychoanalysis that's existential psychology or something like yeah. that? I mean, re- in a way, before. really there are several brands and that in itself mm. it should probably set alarm bells ringing. Because like, there's, there's kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of wondering. S- several f- sort of failed attempts to do it uh, over the years yeah. and uh, the problem is psychoanalysis is a bit complicated and obscure and existentialism is yeah. kind of complicated and obscure so if you combine them both together you end up with a bit of a dog's breakfast potentially something and, that's just very complicated and obscure yeah, and because it's not research based it's not really grounded in anything 
practical. Yeah. So, he, he, mm-hmm. you know, what I found was it ended up becoming really theoretical and a bit of a free-for-all. Like, people seem to be saying completely different things under the auspices of combining existentialism and psychoanalysis. It just seemed like it was all over the place, really. And, okay, and not no that consistency. Useful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and also the clients I was working with at the time were, like, you know, I uh, worked for a drugs project and was working with school kids in South London and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, it just seems so far removed from their reality. Whereas CBT is a little bit more pragmatic and down to earth, and mm. stoicism is a bit more pragmatic and down to earth. So, you know, I th- we need to keep it relatively practical, relatively simple. If as a practical combine. and applicable as possible. That's what really yeah. surprised me about stoicism. I mean, I did a degree in philosophy as well at undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And kind of found the same problem as you that it didn't really answer the questions that I wanted to answer, which was more of a, you know, a way of life than just theoretical arguments all the time. It kind of made me, I don't know if it made my character any better at all, to be honest. I think I've got got a joke about that. Oh yeah, perfect. But but like all good jokes, it's something somebody actually said to me and they meant it seriously (laughs) (laughs) at the time. That's a good, that's a funny joke, buddy. Why? I'm, like, I'm, I'm not joking. Kind of looked at you. Why? Yeah. And uh, so when I talk to philosophers and I say, like, how come you don't teach Stoics yeah. philosophy? How come you don't, you don't teach Stoicism on most undergraduate philosophy curricula? Um, yeah. What people tend to say is they go, well, look, the Stoics take concepts and arguments from earlier philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so on. And all the Stoics really do is kind of figure out the practical application of those arguments to daily life. So what, why would anybody want to study that was what they said to me. Wow. And I thought... Are missing the point? But that, yeah, that's exactly why everybody wants to study it. Right. <laughs> that's what our people are looking for, I think, really, yeah. more than anything, um, rather than just these kind of academic exercises and thought. Yeah. Um, hmm. But did you think whenever you first started, I mean, when you were bringing the stoicism into CBT or kind of, I suppose, looking into it, did mm-hmm. other people that you were at, did they think you'd just gone a bit mad or were they kind of yeah. like, this is, <laughs> yeah, was it just such a nah. news to people really? Well, you know, I'm kind of, I'm not that, I'm not that old. I'll make myself sound really old when I say stuff like this. Like, I'm not that old. I'm like pushing 50 or whatever now. But I'm old enough. Like I think once you reach middle age, you have a kind of moral obligation to look back on your life and review it and try and kind of learn lessons from it. And when I look back in my life, I think some of the best ideas I ever had and some of the most successful ideas I ever had were things that people told me were stupid or crazy or like really, you know, like would never work and all that kind of stuff. And actually there's a reason for that. Because if you have a good idea... um, and uh, it's kind of obvious to everybody, then everyone would be doing it already. And so most really good ideas seem crazy at first to other people. And when I first started combining Stoicism and CBT, people were lining up to tell me how bad an idea that was and that no one would be interested (laughs) in it and it didn't make any sense and, Mm. you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, luckily I ignored them all and just did it anyway. Because I was like, I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of into <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Because like it's that. extraordinary, really. I had, like, no idea about it. I'd heard of Stoicism faintly. But when you, when I reading um, the philosophy of CBT with Stoicism, 
it really fleshed out CBT for me. I see, I've heard mm-hmm. you say in interviews before that it makes CBT sticky. It makes it last mm-hmm. for people more long term. I think mm-hmm. I see why, because there's so much in stoicism between all of the characters and the, yeah. the almost the cosmology of it. You can live inside the value system much more than just, uh-huh. you know, a set of practices. Um, is that something that you found along the way or was that something that you had yourself and then you just brought it into it? Well, also, when you look back on things, you know, like often um, the key ideas, like the important things often are actually the clues are there right from the beginning. Mm. And when I first looked at Stoicism, I thought, you know, the thing is that these books by Marcus Aurelius and Seneca in particular, to some extent by Epictetus, are really quotable and beautifully Mm. written and memorable. And, you know, like that's not really the case with uh, most books on CBT and stuff. And I thought other people go, yeah, that's interesting, Donald, but they didn't really see how seismically important that was. And I thought that was a really big deal. So I thought, Mm. look, if I give someone a book um, like Feeling Good, uh, which was like one of the best-selling CBT uh, self-help books by David Burns, people will read it. They'll think it's a really good book and then they'll forget all about it like a year later or whatever. But if I give them the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, they'll probably go out and get a tattoo. Like they'll they'll go, they'll they'll be reading (laughs) Mm -hmm. it for the rest. They'll name their kids after them and things like that. You know, like it becomes almost like a a yoga, like a religion to them in many cases. Mm -hmm. And so it's Mm -hmm. sticky partly because it's, it's designed to be aphoristic and memorable and it's very well written. I mean, I, I think people don't give Marcus Aurelius enough credit for being an, a talented rhetorician. And I know some people like translators and so on kind of question that and think he's not, I think they're wrong. Like Marcus Aurelius studied advanced at the highest level. In fact, under the leading experts on oratory and rhetoric, the, the Roman Empire had to, literally the leading experts, Herodes Atticus, Marcus Cornelius Fronto, um, for like many years, like for for decades, um, he continued to, like on and off to some extent his studies under these. Le- and he had a team of people teaching him mm. uh, re- rhetoric in Greek and Latin. And so it's absurd for anybody, I think, to to kind of suggest that Marcus isn't a highly accomplished writer. And, you know, like way in excess of the the level of sophistication and practice that most writers would have today. And so when he writes something and scholars kind of turn their nose up at it, but people go out and get it tattooed on them and they remember it 10, 20 years after having read it, Mm -hmm. I'm going to just suggest that's no coincidence. And it's because he maybe he knew what he was doing. And he actually understood language and actually was highly trained and highly competent and highly experienced at using language effectively. I think that's often underestimated. And like, using so this, it in a very poetic kind of way that is memorable yeah. to people that read it. It doesn't stand out because often his passages and the meditations are short and aphoristic, but they're nevertheless mm. very well written. But there are some passages in there that are longer and more elaborate and really you know, quite striking. And we also we have some evidence from letters 
uh, from Fronto. I mean, Fronto is a bit of a kind of sycophant, to be honest. But mm-hmm. Fr- we, Fronto does heap praise on him for, for his oratory and says, "Oh, you know, you're, you're such a talented uh, speechwriter and orator. It's amazing, and all this kind of stuff." And maybe, maybe he's not just being a sycophant. Maybe there's some truth in that. And Marcus was mm-hmm. exceptionally talented. All these speeches that he gave that we that are lost to us now. That we don't have. You know, yeah, yeah I noticed really that well about written. Seneca. As well, Seneca, like, I couldn't believe reading the letters of Seneca how modern they were. I just couldn't yeah. get over the fact that this was a person, you know, 2,000 years ago had written this. Because, like, you read medieval work and the, mm-hmm. even the Bible and things like that, and it's this alien kind of language. Seems a bit, then you read a bit him dated. and you're like, this is, like, you know, better than self-help things that are written at the moment. But also, He's almost in the Bible. You know, like, nearly. Uh, yeah. uh, his brother's in the Bible. I heard I, in one of your interviews, you were saying about Socrates being in a copy. I couldn't, like, that was uh, yeah. completely blowing my mind. In a Gnostic <laughs> Bible, there's an yeah. excerpt from uh, mm. Naj Kamadi. There was a, a, one of the books, uh, one of the Gnostic mm. early Christian Bibles had uh, an excerpt from Plato's Republic in it. So it's Socrates mm-hmm. speaking. So Socrates mm. was in one in a parallel universe. There's a version of Christianity where Socrates <laughs> is in the Bible. How weird uh, is that? And uh, that Seneca's, uh, <laughs> St. Paul met Seneca's brother mm. and it's mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the Stoics are explicitly mentioned in the Bible. St. Paul goes yep. to the Areopagus and the Acts of the Apostles and it says mm. he's talking um, to, the, to the Stoics there. But Seneca's another guy I think is quite misunderstood. So mm. people say he was a, what did they say he was, like a rhetoric teacher? He was, he kind of was and he wasn't. Kind of like a propagandist or like a guy. He was a propagandist. Kind of, he, mm. But he professionally, I mean, he didn't really have a profession in the modern sense mm. of the word, but Seneca made his name really as a professional writer of, so, of sorts. He didn't mm. get paid. He, got pay, yeah. he had patrons supporting him. Um, but he, he was a, essentially mainly a writer. And then he got this gig. He got this sweet gig, as the kids say today, <laughs> as or not so sweet gig, and then uh, as a rhetoric t- mm. tutor to um, Nero, and then kind of yeah. by default became his political advisor. But he he actually was mainly um, made his name as a a writer. Um, and so again, he's a, he knew what he was doing. Like his uh, career depended on his ability to write really popular, really striking, widely circulated uh, essays or they were open letters. That was last for, yeah. you know, that have And even Epictetus, um, he's a weird one because he never wrote anything, but everything that we have from him is written by one of his students called Ariane. And uh, Ariane writes uh, in very simple Greek, um, but actually he was a highly educated, highly accomplished, highly prolific writer. He was one of the most senior statesmen in the Roman Empire. He was a provincial governor of Cappadocia and he became the, the uh, archon, like the governor, uh, if I remember rightly, of Athens um, at one point. And he was, see, he was one of the most senior politicians under, and generals under Hadrian, and, uh, and to some extent under Antoninus Pius as well. And uh, he wrote the discourses of Epictetus, or transcribed them. Um, so mm. they, although they take the form of being the, the words of a guy who was a slave and spoke uh, quite simply, they're, they're written by a guy who was a highly accomplished writer. Mm-hmm. 
which gives them a sort of, yeah, that I think the interesting thing is that they've kind of similar to the Bible and books like that, this ancient wisdom that's been passed down. It's survived generation after generation, that there's been something that people have sought to preserve in it. What do you think that is about ancient wisdom that allows it to travel from there to here? Because, I mean, you could make the argument that we're different now and the culture is different and we have all this technology, you know, what is it that connects the two together? I mean, what do you think it is? Because they were trying to focus on what was the most fundamental thing uh, about human nature. And, you know, for that reason, they arrived at insights that uh, lasted. I mean, Stoicism as a living, thriving school of philosophy flourished for roughly five centuries, which is pretty long time. You know, it's not as long as Christianity, but it's a lot longer than psychoanalysis, a lot longer than Marxism. And uh, and then it, it really kind of petered out and kind of got assimilated into Christianity, but it, it cast its shadow, it pressed its hand upon the aeons as though upon wax, to paraphrase Nietzsche. It left its imprint on Christianity and Western culture. And, uh, you know, over that 500-year period, you know, it was already, in a sense, a foreign philosophy in Athens because Zeno was a Phoenician. He came from quite far away. He came from Cyprus. He was shipwrecked at Athens. And most of the Stoic teachers were from the Near East. Um, and they were viewed kind of as, as foreign immigrants at Athens. It was kind of a, a slightly foreign philosophy. And so right out of the gate, it was kind of a mixture of different cultures and then it, it got transposed. It traveled to different parts of the Greek world, and then it, it made it across to the Roman Empire, or the Roman Republic, mm. actually, and then it became popular in the empire. And that was because the Romans looked at Greek philosophy, and they, they saw the different varieties of flavors of it, and they, they pointed at Stoicism, and they said, we'll have that one in particular. Yeah. Because Stoic philosophy really resonated with Rome's more somewhat more militaristic values as a society and uh, they were what they romans tend to call the ancient uh, virtues of, of the republic resonated uh, with stoic values so they thought oh stoicism is the one that we like you know it seems quite kind of roman in a way and so stoicism flourished in athens and uh, other parts of the greek world it spread as far as babylon uh, in the east um, and to egypt to alexandria uh, and then also uh, th uh, to in the Roman world uh, throughout the, the Roman Empire. So, you know, it, already during that 500 period, it, it was spoken in Greek and Latin. It was practiced by people like, in quite different cultures and parts of the empire, people from different and every uh, major social kind strata. Of mm. Yeah, it, it already Asian. spread and, and was embraced by a variety of different people. And that, there's that's something, something about that's, it. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, that's kind of part of the Stoic political stance as mm. well, this kind of egalitarianism and cosmopolitanism are yeah. um, mm -hmm. kind of built into the, the theory itself. And so that, because it's very abstract and very fundamental, it seemed to be something that appeared valid to people. So the Stoic, like, we should say, like, what do the Stoics teach? The Stoics teach that in plain English, I'm going to, I'll, I'll put this in plain English. Like in technical terms, yeah. the Stoics say that virtue is the only true good. But what they really mean is that the most important thing in life and the thing that determines your quality of life, the only thing ultimately is your 
attitude towards the events that befall you mm. and the way yep. that you handle things is more important than the things themselves and yep. that they call a kind of moral wisdom or arity mm-hmm. we call it virtue in translation now but really they're talking about kind of moral wisdom and uh you know the other things like health wealth reputation people mistakenly assume are what life is all about and, and the Stoics say, no, what matters is the way that you handle these or the way that you handle being deprived of them, having the wisdom to deal with good fortune or misfortune well. And that basic idea is, you know, like trans-cultural. Uh, it uh, applies right exactly across the board. Saying, yeah. It's timeless. Mm-hmm. It's a perennial the universality of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that we face the same problem all the time of being kind of limited beings in a complex environment. That's what I wanted to touch on as well, the stoic fork or the dichotomy of control. And yeah. um, would you consider that to be kind of the cornerstone of mental health of a person like a person wants to be mentally healthy? One of the first things they should do would be to separate out, you know, what they can control from what they can't control and figure yeah. out that sphere of influence. Yeah, I mean, mental is health fair? is complicated, but that's that's one yeah. fundamental uh, foundation mm-hmm. stone, I think. A number of people yeah. over the uh, the last century or so coming at it from different angles have suggested that this, you know, one of the basic challenges of psychological development is to distinguish the boundaries of our ego. And, mm. you know, one way of interpreting that, like, so you come into the world as a baby and it's just this kind of mess of experience. You try to make sense out of the world gradually, you know, and imagine as you're a baby, you're gradually figuring out, well, what things do you control and what things don't you control and what's me and what's not me and what's inside and what's outside. And you figure that out from trial and error from experience to some extent, you know, partly it's instinct, but partly there's some uh, trial and error learning involved as well. And it seems like as adults, we're still confused about this. You know, we're still in the process of kind of working out this thing that was never clear to begin with. Right. We're still kind of figuring out where the boundaries of our control are. And it seems actually self-evident to most people that if they were much clearer about that, they'd probably be more relaxed um, uh, about life, better at solving problems and become more resilient. It's a, it's a strange thing because once you kind of talk, start talking to people about it, they, they almost act as if it's self-evident that that would be a healthy yeah. thing. And, but it's uh, almost, I feel like there's a value thing in it that a lot of the times what we yeah. value nowadays is, you know, you have to be involved in everything and there's, you're so connected to all of the events of the world and all this information all the time that yeah. for you to not be tuned into everything is a kind of mortal sin or a failing yeah. character of some sort. Um, yeah. But that would it's, come into conflict, I think, with, with stoicism. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing a resurgence of popularity in Stoicism. You know, yeah. there are a number of ways of explaining it, but one is the and I'm and, and in saying this, I'm just really repeating back what um, people have told me many times yeah. that they feel bombarded uh, by news, so-called news about stuff yeah. that's not really under their control, like global warming and mm. things. It's not directly under the control. And, yep. you know, like elections in other parts of the world and stuff like that, wars in other and parts of the world. And conflicts in other places. All that kind of, all that good stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they, they worry about it and they get upset about it, but there's not a great deal that they can do to directly influence uh, the outcome. And so they're, they're constantly confronted with this dilemma about how is it possible to care about something 
without mm. how can we care about things that we don't control and yet not uh, become neurotic about them exactly but i think a lot of what being a good person is defined as is actually caring about those things which are outside mm-hmm. of your control now i wonder if that is part of the appeal of stoicism is it offers a value system yeah. where good isn't defined by that good well, is you defined know, more by your your action Joking. But your actions have to be in relation to external things that to the are external, to, to the world. Exactly. And mm. I think that's something that confuses a lot of people when they start reading books about mm-hmm. stoicism. They often think yeah. that the stoics are telling them that they should, you know, just not give a monkeys about anyone or anything. Yeah. Like, and that, mm. you know, that. that <laughs> yeah. So these wise philosophers, five hundred years, arrived at the conclusion that the meaning of life was just that we shouldn't give a monkeys. Who cares? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that, that's and you go, yeah. no, no, that was that's not what they said, right? That's, that's, like, that's yeah, probably this guy Socrates. It. No, there's a bit more <laughs> yeah. to it than that. A little, you know, mm. there's a little bit more thing. A little bit more thinking is required. Give so the, what the Stoics <laughs> really wanted to say is: look, is there a way um, of caring about these things and actually of interacting with them? but without placing so much importance on them that we actually uh, drive ourselves crazy if they don't turn out as we'd have liked. And funnily enough, Albert Ellis, who was the original pioneer of modern cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. he's a New York psychotherapist in the 1950s. He developed a thing called rational emotive behavior therapy. That's what it became known as anyway. And uh, Ellis, his way of putting it was that People um, impose many rigid, absolutistic demands on themselves, on other people, and on life in general. And Ellis basically said, that's a recipe for neurosis, um, as we used to say. And, you know, what would be better than saying, people must like me, and if they don't, that's just awful, because that's a recipe for neurosis. What would be better would be to say, I really prefer it when people like me, but if they don't, it's not the end of the world. And that would be a more flexible, rational, adaptive version of the philosophy. And Ellis's rational, flexible way of looking at things, flexible preferences, is really very similar to what the Stoics are talking about. The Stoics talk about preferred indifference. It's a technical term that they use to try and articulate this subtle idea that we should place value on certain external things. Health is better than disease. Life is better than death. Friends are better than enemies and so on. Um, But not so much so that we should get our knickers in a twist about them. Not so much so that we should be willing to sacrifice our integrity or sacrifice our strength of character in order to cling on to these external things. So I would say there's a kind of value that these things have, but as Epictetus puts it, we should pursue these things lightly and we should never sacrifice wisdom or virtue um, for the for the sake of external goods, or i.e. things that aren't. There's, a really, there's an interesting parallel here from um, sports psychology. So obviously I'm involved with martial yeah. arts, with fighting in Muay Thai and Western boxing. And I, reading, reading the work, there were so many parallels with sports psychology books that I'd read, mm-hmm. focusing more on well, performance rather than externals, rather than outcome. Um, there was a real overlap between. There's a reason for everything. Like, yeah. There's a reason for that. Mm. So 
I mean, to kind of really explain this, you need to kind of like take, we'll do a very quick deep dive into cultural yeah. differences like between <laughs> ancient Greece and Rome and modern society, right? Because that's what confuses yeah. people, right? Uh-huh. In ancient Greece and Rome, there were more militaristic societies. And uh, yeah. Greece had a, a, a citizen army where it was expected that all young men basically um, would train in martial arts and train in the use of weapons, like throwing javelins and stuff like that, and sword play, to prepare them um, for military service. And uh, even dancing, they had militaristic dances that were meant uh, to help people learn, like, like using kata or forms in martial arts. The, the mm-hmm. Greeks and Romans would use dance to practice jumping and leaping and th- uh, thrusting spears and things like that. And uh, it strengthened their, their, like their, their body while they were uh, holding heavy shields and so on and wearing armor. And, uh, you know, all these guys are the product, uh, or most of them are the product of, of these societies where martial arts, for want of a better way of putting it, were an integral part of the culture for virtually yeah. everybody. Um, growing up, all young men uh, growing up, and and all the the sports were all kind of related to this militarism to some extent uh, as well, mm. um, and so like it's not a surprise therefore that throughout Stoicism these athletic and military metaphors are pervasive, and you could you know if you're into martial arts and you're into Stoicism, it's a, it's a good way of approaching the subject to ask yourself, you know, and t- to what extent. Is Stoicism the product uh, of a society in which of a most of the society. youth were trained in uh, in martial arts? Uh, That's weapons, interesting. I didn't think of it like that at all. Other aspects of military uh, culture, um, for sure. And there are many explicit references to to sports, to wrestling, and also to ball games yep. in uh, in the surviving Stoic writings. And philosophy being taught in a gym along with oh, yeah. types yeah. of wrestling and martial arts and things like that. Yeah, I thought the overlap was very interesting, even if they were just, I, again, I suppose on the topic of the universal nature of it, that you could have people like, because I have a black belt in ninjutsu, which is a Japanese martial art, but mm-hmm. a lot of the canonical values of that would be very similar. Like, really the same kind of thing of like, don't let sorrow and pain overtake you, you know, cultivate mm-hmm. an immovable spirit. You know, don't let your heart be controlled by desire, pleasure, or dependence. You know, choose the course of justice as your life. And there's a huge overlap over them. And even though they're very different cultures, I wonder, you know, how much are the Stoics touching on things that are universally human? And is that what appeals, you know, yeah. that allows it to be so cosmopolitan for everyone? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people think that Stoicism in part reflects uh, a way of life where self-discipline is important. And I mm. kind of agree with that. I think there's some truth in that. But actually, I think that's something yeah. that everyone misses, which is that Stoic philosophy to a large extent is the natural product of a lifestyle um, where facing death uh, mm. is, yeah. is undertaken voluntarily. Um, mm. So to serve in the ancient military requires you know, facing your own mortality. Um, yeah. You go out to battle, you think, I could, this could, this might be it, buddy. Like, this could be, <laughs> this, this could be yeah. it. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. And that experience of this could be it, like, yeah. is, 
you know, really one of the seeds from which a large portion of Stoic philosophy kind of blossoms uh, as a, a sort of natural consequence in a way. Because if you're willing to exhibit self-discipline and courage in the face of danger um, yeah. and, you know, and face up to your own mortality, chances are it's going to make you think maybe money's not all it's made up to be. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, go, um... maybe it doesn't really matter like how big my house is and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Like it's going to what make your you question. Think of you. So yeah, a lot of those values are going to seem, hopefully, like are going to start to seem more trivial. It's all smoke yeah. and mirrors, right? Mm. And uh, you know, our society is constructed on these values that are a bunch of smoke and mirrors. I hate to break it to you, you know, like your listeners and stuff, but it's all BS, it's just... right? And yeah. it's you know, all the way through history, we get indoctrinated mm. into these societal values that are all about materialism and hedonism and narcissism and consumerism and celebrity culture and all that yeah. uh, kind of pig swill, dog's breakfast of like nonsense. Um, and there are reasons why we get repeatedly indoctrinated into it in every society or most societies. And But then one of the things that tends to snap people out of it is a confrontation with their own mortality. And mm. they, they think, maybe this is it. And then they start to yeah. think, like, well, maybe getting... Maybe, maybe, maybe like getting uh, it's not really that big a deal that I, you know, that I got um, Bruce Willis's autograph, or maybe it's not. <laughs> well, hang on, maybe. slow down there, Donald. All right, so, let's not go that far. All let's right. not go that far. You know, <laughs> yeah, maybe getting that deal. promotion at work isn't, isn't, you know, wasn't all so, that I made yeah. out to be. Um, you know, what did it, what was it all for, really, in the end? What did it stand yeah. for? And it makes you reappraise those values, hopefully. I think a lot of people maybe did that during the pandemic. Um, it's, yeah. I think yeah. some people, like not everybody, but I think some people kind of like had a moment where they sat down and, and thought, maybe this is all BS. Maybe, what you know, maybe it's all smoke and mirrors, all this stuff about, mm. you know, like celebrity culture and we're all meant to aspire to having yeah. a big house and a speedboat. Like, I don't want a speedboat. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I I'm not like... I don't really care. I don't um, care about sushi and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the latest, like, hipster, f- like, yeah. coffee. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's meaningless. <laughs> like, design, designer clothes and, and all that, you know. It's all is, the- I think there's that attitude in martial arts, really, that it's, it kind of, yeah, it trims the fat a little bit and it gets you very, yeah. like, your focus. I mean, because with a martial art, your body is your tool as well. It's not like football where you leave the football behind. The body yeah. is always what you've shaped. And so you can't really leave behind any kind of martial arts or fine sport because you That's like a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Hmm. Oh, really? You know, there's a passage. Yeah, there's a passage. So Marcus Aurelius um had like was trained in bo- trained in martial arts. He was did boxing and pancratian and wrestling. Hmm. And he uh, he also trained to fight in armor, probably training with gladiators. Yeah. And uh, he also did these militaristic dances. He was the head of the College of the Salai. Um, and uh, he he says in the meditations that uh, philosophy is more like boxing um, than like sword fighting because the swordsman can put down his weapon or pick it up. It can be knocked mm. out of his hand. But all the boxer has to do is clench his fist and he's armed. 
And what it means is that your clenching your fist seems to be kind of a symbol for focusing on your philosophical precepts. And what he means is that if you're trained in philosophy, you're kind of armed with these principles or precepts. And all that you have to do is kind of like focus your attention on them, like clenching your fist yeah. to remind yourself mm. of them, carry them with you everywhere you go because they're part of your yeah. very character. In the same way mm. that training your body, like to do martial arts, is something you take with yeah. you everywhere you go. Like it can't be knocked out of your hand. Like it's, uh, you, you know, you've shaped your body, your muscle memory and so on. He's saying, you know, you know, to the training in stoicism shapes your brain. Like it remolds your character, like so you. Go yeah, exactly, and it shapes. Yeah, shapes your character and shapes your values. I think as well what you find important, and mm -hmm. even things like uh, courage, which is a big one for the Stoics, and mm -hmm. practical wisdom. I think in martial arts is very important because if you're not practical, you're gonna get punched in the head, and mm -hmm. that is yeah. something which most people want to avoid. Don't so like you get kind head. of. Yeah, so it's kind of instant. <laughs> yeah, you don't want any of that impractical wisdom. Why well, yeah, it's no use? Like the Stoics were all yeah, exactly too much philosophizing. You get yeah. kicked in the head or something. But <laughs> sorry, go ahead. They thought that um, I think in the ancient world there was um, kind of perceived to be a, a dichotomy or a contrast between two different versions of philosophy, represented by Diogenes the Cynic and Plato. And uh, so Plato represented this more scholarly, bookish, academic, uh, you know, the word academic literally comes from Plato's Academy, <laughs> which is, uh, by the way, that's where I'm right now. I'm at uh, Academy oh, really? of Yeah, <laughs> like literally right there. What? Right. Um, it's outside. Right. Yeah, that's where yeah. I'm right now. I'm in Parco Academia Platonis in Athens. Unbelievable. Uh, the original location of Plato's Academy. Like, so that's where the word academic comes from. Uh, it, means kind of, yeah. it was perceived to be bookish and a bit nerdy. And then Diogenes' approach to philosophy was almost kind of like cynical about with a small c in a sense that he mm. sneered at bookishness and he thought it was more, more about strengthening your character, almost like a yoga. And the Stoics yeah. kind of thought there's a middle ground. They seem to occupy the middle mm. ground. The Stoics think it's okay to read books and debate logic and stuff, as long as that actually improves your character. But if you're just yeah. reading loads of books and arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a, a pin, that's the, <laughs> then you're yeah. too much of a nerd, even for the Stoics. Like, and yeah. they, they thought, no, that's, that's not a virtue, that's a vice now. You've become... And you've turned knowledge into a vice, like you've disappeared up your own backside, as it were. So Stoics thought there's a kind of middle ground <laughs> where knowledge serves a purpose and it can, by contributing to self-improvement. Um, but you have to be careful that you don't just become bookish for its own sake. Yeah, and you end up kind of doing sports for nerds. That's kind of what I found in philosophy mm -hmm. was like you get caught up in this whole arguments and it's all like a weird status kind of academic game that... Just didn't really, it wasn't what I was looking for anyway from it, um, which is more of a philosophy of life. There's something that we touched on um, previously, which was hedonism and yeah. the kind of the, stoicism as an alternative to it. Something I see with a lot of young people like millennials like myself and younger mm. people is getting caught in this cycle of hedonism and yeah. it being almost a worldview in itself, like a philosophy of hedonism where mm. pleasure and feeling is the highest of goods. And yeah destructive nature of that um, and I wonder do you have any thoughts on hedonism as it relates yeah. to stoicism and, yeah I mean it's one step removed from problem. nihilism like exactly it, it's yeah. nihilism for people that don't like nihilism like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like basically nihilism. you know it's kind of like I can't figure out 
what to do in my life. And mm. I don't want to be an nihilist. So yeah. I guess I'm just going to, you know, stuff my face <laughs> with candy or like, you know, take a lot of drugs or something yeah. like, because that mm. seems by default, like, you know, the only option is a philosophy yeah. of life. Um, mm. So it's everyone's kind of like lazy default philosophy of life. But it doesn't matter how many drugs you take or how many beers you drink or, you know, how many episodes of Friends you watch or how much you like. Like when, you know, the Grim Reaper comes knocking, like, and, you know, this could be it, buddy. Like, you're going to look back on it and think, maybe that was all a waste of time. Like, because in retrospect, it's probably going to seem like it, it, it wasn't really... You know, for most people anyway, it seems in retrospect it wasn't yeah. a valuable life. It's, the thing about hedonism is that generally speaking, some people I know might disagree with us, but I, I think the majority of people instinctively recognize that they don't admire hedonists. So although it's tempting for them themselves, they don't have a poster in their bedroom of like mm. the Marquis de Sade or whatever usually. They don't kind of like think, <laughs> people I really admire are he, the guy, This you know, these guys that, you know, like just live in luxury and do nothing all day. That's who I want to be like. Yeah. So we, we don't admire people. And the Stoics would say that one of the, I'm being serious in the sense that Socrates and the Stoics like to employ this, what we call today in CBT, a double standard strategy. So they'll say, okay, like, so you admire people who are self-disciplined and heroic and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like Bruce Willis, like, but, or whoever, yeah. right? I'm joking, right? But whoever. <laughs> uh, you, so we, our role models are, are people that have these character strengths and stuff, and they don't tend to be people that just lie in bed and stuff themselves with candy or drink beer or whatever all day or smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, they're, they're people that kind of have more, more, a bit more about them. And so how can we ever admire ourselves? How can we ever respect ourselves if we don't live up to the same kind of standard that we apply to other people? And the Stoics and Socrates both tend to point out that contradiction. Like, you know, we, if we want really to experience fulfillment in life, you know, the one way of approaching that is to try and become more like the people that we genuinely admire. Mm-hmm. and to embody some of the character traits that we genuinely find praiseworthy and, and admirable in life, like wisdom, courage, self-discipline, justice. That's really right. interesting. Yeah, oh, because there's kind of a thing I notice with young people as well is this kind of 70s counterculture thing. I mean, I did it myself where mm-hmm. you like, admire the rebellious spirit of the 70s and things like that, but yeah. as an excuse for just the hedonism bit yeah. of it. So it's almost like you get this identity by default because you're mm. you're looking for somebody to look up to, but you're only finding it there. That's why I like the Stoic pantheon of Socrates and Marcus Aurelius and guys like that because they present different role models than yeah, definitely than some of the ones. And that you know, I think that catches people's attention for some reason and it resonates with them. Mm. It fills a gap. I'll tell you what people keep saying to me if I say to them, mm. "Hey, hey guys, how come you're all into Stoicism?" Um, yeah. they'll say the, the sort of thing that they'll say to me and I've been doing this for about 25 years now so I've, like, yeah. I've had the fortune to speak to a, a lot of people and they, they'll they say because stoicism and they'll say well Donald stoicism seems to me to offer a western alternative to buddhism and I'll think oh that's yeah. interesting okay that's partly why I get into it I was originally quite into buddhism and stuff and then I got into Stoicism because it resonated more with my cultural norms and values. Uh, yeah. Or they'll say, 
well, it offers a secular alternative to Christianity. And I think, well, that's yeah. ironic because the Stoics were actually quite uh, pious and, and religious. Mm. But most of the modern people that are into Stoicism um, are atheists or agnostics, actually. They see it as yeah. um, a kind of like, uh, a bit like Christianity. It shares many things with Christianity in terms of its cosmopolitan ethics and so on. Um, but it, it's not based on faith, revelation, or tradition. It's based on philosophical reasoning. And so that appeals mm -hmm. to many logically-minded people today. And they'll say Stoicism offers a more down-to-earth alternative to academic philosophy. It's more practical. Yeah. And I think, well, that's partly why I get into it. I spent four years studying philosophy at Aberdeen, and uh, it got more and more complicated. And then I thought, actually, Stoicism offers something that's a bit more grounded, and that's why I like it. And then conversely, they'll say it offers a more philosophical alternative to cognitive therapy or self-help. Yeah. So they, these people yeah. say, I like self-help, and I like cognitive therapy, but what do you do when it ends? Like... That puzzles me as a cognitive <laughs> therapist. It's meant to be time limited. You have the clients and then they pop out the sausage factory mm. of therapy at the other end. <laughs> and they're, they're supposedly cured or whatever yeah. or better. Um, and, and, but then what do they do? And so you think, well, we've taught you all these really cool things, like you know how your beliefs maybe to a large extent are, are shaping your emotions, yada, yada, yada. And then the client thinks, well, that's helped me overcome my panic attacks or my depression. But doesn't this have implications for, you know, the life, the universe and everything? And the cognitive therapist will say, well, buddy, that's up to you to work out. Like, my, my, <laughs> my, my work here is done. Like, we'll see, see you later. later. Well, let me know how you got yeah. on that. And then they're just kind of, they're just left at the door. And I, I, then yeah. if they said to me, but Donald, what, what would the philosophy look like? What would the philosophy of life mm. look like? that was based <laughs> that on the assumption that yeah. our beliefs to a large extent shape our emotions and stuff like that. I'd say, I think you might've just reinvented stoicism. Like yeah, it would look, probably <laughs> yeah. look quite a lot like stoicism. So stoicism like fills this gap. Mm. You know, yeah. people, people do CBT, they do self-help and they go, but I want something bigger and deeper, mm. you know, um, CBT, to, uh, people probably aren't going to like me saying this, but see, I can, I'm allowed to because I'm a CBT practitioner. You're, so CBT yeah, really yeah. is a bunch of techniques and strategies, right? Yeah. And But it's not a philosophy of life. And yeah. uh, so people go, off, go, okay, these techniques and strategies and concepts are cool, but how do I turn it into an entire lifelong thing um, that mm. I'm doing more consistently? Uh, so what sense does it make to say that I do this to treat my panic attacks, but then I kind of forget about it when it comes to work and relationships and other domains of my life? Surely I should just be doing this everywhere, like, if it makes sense. Mm. And then cognitive therapists yeah. will say, oh, you, oh that, that's, that's a beyond my pay grade. Like, you're talking, yeah. you're talking yeah. philosophy now. But that's, mm. you know, it was a philosophy originally. You know, uh, originally it was Stoicism, and this, that's what the Stoics said, it should be. Uh, stoicism's for life, not just for Christmas. You know, yeah. it should but be. Kinda, I think bigger. that's not just a problem with therapy. I think that's a problem with our culture in general. Is that we're born like you don't just go into therapy and have to address those questions. Everybody's trying to address these massive philosophical questions with no training or any basis yeah. in it. Like we can't all be existential philosophers. 24 hours a day i suppose yeah. i think that's why a lot of people just default to just drinking pints or whatever it is because you know these yeah. are the most complicated questions that ever existed and yeah. it took people thousands of years to address them and we can't just make them up in our own yeah. lives that's why 
you need a framework like this that actually functions properly. Um, yeah. So I think it's kind um, of a disservice to people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think in the ancient world, people were a bit more cognizant of the fact that we, you know, there were already people that had tried to answer these problems. And yeah. then philosophy, I suppose you could say in a sense that philosophy abandoned um, its obligation to the man in the street and it, it became a scholarly yeah. pursuit yeah. Uh, embedded in, I blame Plato, but he was one of yeah. the first to to make, he wasn't the first really, but he, he Socrates uh, did the opposite and he took philosophy out into the agora, into the street mm. and he, he caused um, really a controversy in part by doing philosophy with everyone. You know, the yeah. ancient commentators make a, uh, you know, raise an eyebrow at this, as it were, there. They say, do you know, Socrates is doing philosophy with women and he's doing philosophy with <laughs> slaves and foreigners. Yeah. Like, you name it, right? Rich and poor and yeah. everybody. And they thought that was <laughs> kind of weird. Like, because mm. originally philosophy had mainly been taught to uh, wealthy uh, Athenian youths, uh, young men, yeah. uh, predominantly. Mm. Uh, not entirely, not entirely exclusively, but to a large extent. And then Socrates kind of rocked the boat um, by sharing this knowledge and wisdom, um, you know, mm. with foreigners and uh, immigrants, with prostitutes, you know, yeah. um, you, you name it, everybody. And then Plato really w- retreated from the agora. This is the retreat mm. from the agora into the yeah. uh, into where I am right now, into the uh, academy where to women weren't allowed. And, uh, Do you think that are... was partly because they killed Socrates? I mean, Socrates really is a philosophical martyr, which always uh-huh. strikes me. Like he took it to the the next level, really. Um, in that he was willing to die for it. And yeah, I mean, they and it, I don't know that Socrates was even the only one that they killed. I think they, it's possible yeah. we've got some mixed evidence about this, but the Athenians maybe killed or exiled a couple of other philosophers. <laughs> killed so loads they, of people. They were on a roll. Um, just yeah. <laughs> So he wasn't, he, I think he was the first. Mm. Uh, yeah. What was the, I think it was Anaxagoras also maybe was executed or exiled. And then, you know, but there may be, it may well be that Plato thought, uh, you know, screw this for a game of soldiers. Like, I'm I'm just going to go yeah. and I'll, I'll, I'll just hide myself away uh, in this gymnasium where the, you know, the upper echelons of society can talk about radical ideas, but it's not like I'm going to be rocking the uh, apple cart too much. Um, no. And maybe that was, maybe that was part of it. Um, but some people think, you know, on the other hand, the Athenians also felt quite bad about killing Socrates. Like people often do that, you know, it, they, it was kind of like, they, they were like, it seemed like a good idea Sorry at the time. Right. Oh, jeez. And then they, they were like, we got Socrates. a bit carried away there. And then they woke <laughs> up the next morning with a hangover and they were like, oh, did we really do that? Like, he was pretty good. I'll tell you a weird story. You can go and see this. You know, when you come to Athens, <laughs> yeah. you can go to the Museum yeah. of the Ancient yeah. Agora and the Stoa Attalou in the middle of Athens. And you'll see an exhibit there of a, a little statuette that's probably Socrates. I think it looks, it looks like Socrates. Like, it's probably sure. Socrates. And they found that in the prison house, in the which is in the Agora. And so that's weird, right? Because mm. somebody put a little statue of Socrates in the prison where he was ex- executed. They dug it up. And we don't know exactly yeah. when, but presumably after, after he died. It's the kind of little statuette that you would have in a household shrine. Um, yeah. to, to you know to um, praise an ancestor 
our hero. Um, and so it's kind of like they felt guilty about it. They, were a bit like, uh, they wanted to honor his memory. Or... Shouldn't have killed him. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't actually. It wasn't that bad. Like, it wasn't. Yeah, as bad it was pretty. It be... Yeah, it's interesting. But I wonder then, like, because there's a lot of in. I I wonder. I wanted to ask you basically if you thought this was. I mean, do you think of the the sage or Socrates as kind of providing a, a normative framework for what a uh, psychologically successful or like what you know the ideal is in a sense like you talk about the stoic method of consulting the ideal asking you know what would socrates do or like people do it with anybody that you admire in some sense and um, does that type of sage figure provide a framework for your kind of yeah realization of your so. potential hmm. i mean i think so like i think one of the fundamental strategies that we have to employ in life is to step outside of our own perspective um in the bible it says you know you can you see a tiny little sliver of wood in your brother's eye but you don't see a huge plank of wood in your own Mm. and what that means is you know we're really good at spotting small imperfections (laughs) or biases in other people's perspective Mm. but we are not really good at spotting whopping great defects in our own and uh, Galen, Marcus, is a, Marcus Aurelius's court physician, is one of our main sources um, for uh, of literature in the ancient world. We have many surviving texts mm. by Galen and actually many references to Stoicism, although he wasn't a Stoic. And yeah. uh, Galen talks about Stoic therapia, Stoic psychotherapy, and uh, he quotes Zeno and Chrysippus, mm-hmm. and he, he quotes Aesop's fables, and he says there's a story in Aesop that everyone's born with two sacks hanging around their neck. And there's a big one <laughs> that hangs in or... front of them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's a big one that hangs in front of them. Yeah. And uh, this is the kind of, yeah, the, 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 yeah. Like, this is the censored version of Aesop. The, <laughs> the, there's, a big, uh, there's a big bag that contains everybody else's defects that hangs in front of you, and you can see it everywhere you go. Mm. And then there's a little bag that hangs behind the back of your neck that contains all of your own flaws, <laughs> and you can never really yeah. kind of get a perspective on it, but everybody else mm. can see it as clear as day. And yeah. the point I'm getting to is Galen says, well, how do you fix that? How do you deal with this problem of human nature that we're all, we've all got blind spots? Mm. Um, and he says, well, you, you need to seek the help of another person um, who can be like a coach or a therapist or a mentor and offer you an outside perspective. And if you can't do that, you have to perform some mental gymnastics and learn to take a step back and view yourself as though Mm -hmm. from an outside perspective. And that's what Marx Aurelius was doing in writing the meditations. You know, it's an exercise in, in, taking a step back and, and critically appraising his own character objectively from an outside point of view. And that kind of actualizing your conscience as well, in a way that you've kind of clothed it and given it a character in your own mind, rather than maybe just a, a disembodied voice of some sort. Um, mm-hmm. I think could be, it's really useful. Anyway, it's something I've been employing a lot thinking of, you know, what would Socrates do? Um, and it's kind of, it seems like a weird thing to be doing. But it does function. It does the job, really. And conscience is kind of an unexplainable phenomenon. I mean, we don't really understand what that is, the superego or, you know, whatever way you want to look at it. But do you draw a connection between those two things or do you look at them separately? Yeah, I think it's a form of Mm. training and something that resembles conscience, developing it, 
right from mm. a rational perspective mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's psychologically primitive basic and, and, and important to, to mental health it's a form of yeah. reparenting and a way yeah. of becoming your own parent or mentor mm. um, Epictetus says to his students that they should ask themselves what would Socrates do in any given, given situation uh, which is interesting because it shows that Epictetus viewed Socrates as you know the the godfather of stoicism yeah the, he's he's the one he doesn't say to them and um, that they uh should uh, em- empathize with or um attempt to emulate uh famous stoic philosophers maybe he says that of Zeno, but he, mainly he says that they should emulate socrates, socrates. Uh, yeah as their main role model so it was very clearly epictetus thought that stoicism was uh, a philosophy that uh, kind of was inspired by Socrates ultimately. Yeah. I know he always mentioned about him that it's kind of like a way of almost, you know, chopping up Socrates and then teaching people how to think with that kind of, with his rational Mm -hmm. philosophy. And with the values of Stoicism, you know, wisdom, courage, temperance, and what's Mm -hmm. the last one again? Uh, Justice. Um, yeah. do, when you think about those, are they values that you aspire to and then you have your personal values or did you make your personal values stoic values? Um, well, I think of those values as being, and then this I think is how they were understood in the ancient world. Mm. Yeah, actually, this is the first thing I learned about stoicism because right. those cardinal values are part of the symbolism of Freemasonry. And I became interested in philosophy because my father was a Freemason when I was a kid back in Scotland, the four corners of the Freemasonic Lodge symbolize uh, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. And uh, so I kind of read about that and thought, that's weird. Where does that come from? It's like a strange little kind of fourfold uh, structure. And then I I saw it recurring in medieval literature and and Stoic uh, literature. And it's there in Plato to some extent. we don't know exactly where it came from originally. Right? It just seems mm. to kind of gradually crystallize in, in Greek mm. literature. But uh, I, in the ancient philosophers, they debated this for centuries. And to them, these uh, cardinal virtues are kind of schematic. So yep. the most important virtue is wisdom, uh, Sophia, um, or uh, phronesis. Uh, mm-hmm. practical wisdom or prudence and the stoics define wisdom i'm going to paraphrase them here if i was just explaining it to my little girl she asked me once what is wisdom and yeah. i said well i think wisdom is knowing what the most important things in life are and also realizing that many of the things that other people think are important aren't actually as important as they believe them to be like and i think that's really the essence of wisdom now the stoics say that wisdom technically consists in understanding the difference between good, bad, and indifferent things. Or Mm -hmm. you could say the same thing more concisely as that for Stoics, wisdom consists in grasping the true nature of the good, right, Mm -hmm. basically. And the other moral values, for Stoics following Socrates, all virtues are one. And so the the other virtues uh, really evolve from that. So justice is wisdom applied to the social sphere, Mm-hmm. Um, when you, if you really understand the nature of the good and you live consistently in accord with that in terms of yeah. your relationship with other people individually and also collectively in society, then you're exercising dikaiosune, 
which is the what we badly translate as justice. It's actually that's not a good translation. Uh, yeah, it used to be translated righteousness, as righteousness mm, which yeah. is a bit kind of pompous sounding. We could yeah. translate it as social <laughs> virtue, which also sounds a bit weird, uh, but it really yeah. <laughs> it, it really just means virtue in the social uh, arena. And it, the Stoics tell us that it consists of justice, fairness, mm. but also benevolence or kindness towards other people, which isn't really captured by the English word justice. Um, no, but it is part of what the, the Stoics mean. And the Chiasone is exhibited uh, by Zeus towards all of mankind in Stoic theology. It's also exhibited by a mother towards her children and by children towards their, their, uh, their parents and so on and mm. so forth. So it's a much broader concept than the, the word justice implies. And then if you're going to live... So wisdom and justice are kind of, the, in a sense, the, the two most important virtues. If you're going to live consistently in accord with wisdom and justice, you're going to encounter problems uh, doing so because of your emotions and desires. And therefore, in order to live consistently with wisdom and justice, you're going to have to master your fears, and that's going to require mm. courage or Andrea, and you're going to have to conquer uh, your cravings, desires, and habits, and that's going to require sofrasune, or what we badly translate as self-discipline or moderation or temperance. Mm. And that that is really, you know, so it's a kind of logical structure, if you like. And then that's the other really interesting. Like, if you can think of other, you know, most of the other virtues that you can think of probably fall somewhere within that framework or system. Yeah. You know, the, mm. the Stoics thought there were dozens and dozens of subordinate virtues. They list them, um, yeah. you know, that, that, that fall under those headings, but they're all forms of moral wisdom, ultimately. Um, and Socrates, this really was a position adopted by Socrates much earlier. So they're all kind of yeah. That's really interesting. I had not put that together at all. Jesus Christ! And um, <laughs> reading all of, that's that they're all kind of coming from the same virtue. There was something you yeah. wrote as well in the philosophy of CBT that really stuck out to me, which was describing Stoicism as a philosophy of love. Well, yeah. where a lot of people misunderstand that about it. Yeah. But in that sense, do you mean that the underlying motivation for the wisdom and for that kind of path of the sage and that self-discipline, in a sense? is love yeah. of a sort. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was very The first time I, I said that, one of my friends burst out laughing. He thought I was joking. <laughs> like, but I'm not. Yeah. I'm absolutely no, deadly I, serious. I see like, it as well. it, um, Stoicism is a philosophy of love. It is. Um, I mean, I could talk about that all day, but first thing I say, and I, I, it sounds like all the, you know, I, I think all the best arguments and all the most true arguments, it sounds almost glib if I explain it, but look, the, the clues in the name, like philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. <laughs> love of wisdom. And the, the Stoics, so oh, how could that be about love? Like, the, the, that's <laughs> yeah. what the word means for a star, right? Yeah. So like, oh, I, I, I sound kind of glib in saying that, but I mean it, yeah. right? Seriously, of course, mm. it's about love. That's what the word means. Like, so, and the Stoics take that very literally because they spoke mm. Greek. So they yeah. they they take it quite literally that for for them um, philosophy is about prizing wisdom mm. above everything else and, and genuinely loving wisdom, cherishing it, yeah. protecting it, nurturing it, and admiring it in others, and dedicating your entire life 
uh, to it and being unwilling to sacrifice it uh, for the sake of any external good. So, of course, the, the central principle of the entire philosophy is, a, is the love of wisdom. Mm. And then there are many other uh, respects in, in which love, uh, you know, the Stoics love virtue and wisdom in other people. And then uh, you see that in book one of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. He lists 17 different people, his teachers yeah. and family members, mm. And he's contemplating all the character traits that he loves or admires in uh, each of those individuals. So it's an exercise in a kind of uh, contemplative practice uh, that revolves around a kind of love, admiration, friendship, or respect, Mm. you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, It's some kind of positively toned attitude towards uh, virtue in itself, but also as embodied or exemplified by other people. It's a very different Um, definition of love, I suppose, than the one you would think, you know, Disney movie kind of. Oh, yeah. The quiet. Well, we don't go to Disney movies. (laughs) We're probably a bit old for that at this point. (laughs) The only reason I've seen them is because I've got a wee girl. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, we can't, we can't, I don't know. I know people are going to complain. There probably can be more complaints about this than anything else I'm going to say, but, um, <laughs> I, I don't think we should go to Disney movies for our mm. philosophy of life. Like, <laughs> I'm sure there are probably people that are, I'm, I'm, I'm told that mm. Jiminy Cricket or whatever is like highly regarded Pinocchio. as I, so yeah. Pinocchio, you know, and whatnot, like, but it's not really where I go. Um, you know, it, yeah, like, uh, absolutely. Uh, there's a popular idea of love, which actually most authors that write about the subject consider to be, like most things in our society in close inspection, not only is it stupid, but um, kind of not even very coherent. Like, uh, it it yeah. kind of falls apart. So we idealize a form of love that's really more like a kind of obsessive attachment to other people and a kind of neurotic idealization of them. Like, that's sorry to ruin all those rom-coms <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's my really, Disney audience has gone there that's, yeah, that's, that's a, the Disney audience <laughs> left. But, like, but that, that's really what most of them are, are kind of uh, teaching and, it's also a bit childish um, I think in a way I don't know. It's also it's funny if you look at old movies about love. Like if you look at movies about uh, like romantic movies from twenty or thirty mm-hmm. years ago, I think a lot of them seem to me to be about stalkers. Like they're kind of slightly <laughs> yeah. creepy. If you know, I'm not, if you know that. Yeah. yeah. Oh like, yeah. The way well, they sure. portray love and romance is usually pretty creepy, really. Fair um, illegal. Because they're quite the, the, even in its own terms, it's pretty mm. incoherent. Like it's like people struggle to distinguish between love and, and kind of infatuation or obsession, addiction, um, or the kind. Yeah. yeah, which isn't love; it's the opposite. It's actually quite yeah. toxic, self-deceptive, and, and insulting yeah. towards the other people. Mm. Like if you're in love mm-hmm. or obsessed with uh, an idealization, an idealization of somebody, by definition, you're not actually in love with the real person. You know, yeah. it's all in your it's head. Fantasy. Like it's mm. a fantasy, right? So you know, by definition, you you like you don't love the the real person. It's in a sense, it's a form of it's, hatred. You've, you've like, made them up because they're not. Yeah, good so it's kind of psychological <laughs> violence. You've replaced them <laughs> yeah. with something else in order to in fact become infatuated yeah. with it. Mm-hmm. Like, but uh, you know, if that's what floats your boat, like that's, yeah, you know, that works. That's what that's what all these movies are about. <laughs> but most yeah, authors are right about love, pointing that out and say, yeah. 
the the movies and TV programs and poems and things that people bang on about are, are on closer inspection actually kind of creepy, kind of bizarre and weird. But that's what I liked about the, sto- the saying that that stoicism is a philosophy of love because it's something I learned from martial arts, which was a different kind of love, which was more like a kind of commitment and discipline mm-hmm. and something that you sacrificed for. And even if it was you know love of the person that you could be like that you were going to you were actually committing to something that was good for you in the long run even though it was difficult and it had more of a weight to it than just the you know hollywood kind of shit and i i saw that in stoicism as well Um, i mean if you love someone surely by definition you respect them and want them to flourish you respect their autonomy and want them to flourish right don't radical suggestion but in that case, you, given that you don't have any direct control over them, if they wake up one day and decide that they would rather be in a relationship with someone else, then you should be cool with that. Like, whereas most people's idea of, of love is that they would freak out. Like, <laughs> and that, you know, that, and that's not really love at all, is it? That's kind of infatuation and possessiveness and kind of like all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And it's a recipe for neurosis as well. Like, so yeah. the, the Stoics... Um, you know, this has always been a controversial idea. The Stoics, even in their day, people thought were espousing a kind of doctrine of free love in a sense. The Stoics, mm. here's a little bit of tip, a little bit of trivia for you. The Stoics yeah. thought that they should, that the Greek society should abolish the law against um, adultery. Oh yeah, that doesn't yeah, seem they thought, So they thought that they still. thought that people should be, they thought that people should be free to have relationships mm. with anybody they want. They didn't think that you should yeah. be stoned to death or punished or whatever for committing adultery. Mm. Whoa, that seems fairly counterintuitive. For but I, I, well, I was reading a bit today actually. There was uh, it was Epictetus talking about a person who committed adultery and about the determinism kind of free will debate of you know you should look at a person in that state who's trespassed against himself as kind of sick in a sense. You know, you're there's you're a kind of a, you're not a difference in uh, the way that Romans and the Greeks thought about this. The Romans mm-hmm. had slightly more kind of um, conservative sexual mm. uh, values like the yeah. uh the the greeks generally were kind of a little bit more liberal in their outlook and in fact I would, uh, one yeah, of the I reasons we, we don't have xeno's republic um in mm. part because we're told that our uh, during the roman um rep- the, the towards the end of the roman republic if i remember rightly one of the librarians i think in pergamon um oh. uh like Bowdlerized um, Zeno's books, like censored them and took out the um, stuff that was offensive. And it's kind of implied that it was sexual stuff that the Romans weren't comfortable yeah. with, that, mm. that they kind of uh, removed from the early Stoic texts. Um, you know, and in part, like, you, you know, this is the, the Stoic uh, original idea that, you know, we shouldn't be overly attached and possessive mm. about material goods. And then that means that, that applies to relationships as well. Mm-hmm. it's interesting yeah there was a question i wanted to ask you actually just for fun but um about kind of the romans and about marcus aurelius do you think if marcus aurelius was the emperor instead of pontius pilate he would have crucified jesus well hang on let me think about this for a second would he have crucified <laughs> jesus you think, um, if i write a screenplay about it will i get rich God, that's a good jesus. that's a that's a good question um, <laughs> the good emperor, the good guy. Would he have crucified him? Uh, Did he crucify people? 
He, yeah, like he, he must have. Um, I don't know if there's any direct report of him crucifying anyone, but under Marcus Aurelius, Justin Martyr was beheaded. Um, and the reason that he was beheaded was that he wouldn't swear allegiance to the emperor because yeah. that meant making sacrifices to the Roman gods and Justin Martyr refused to do that. And uh, it's actually quite complicated, but he, he there was an exemption made for Jewish people, um, and uh-huh. uh, but the Christians didn't fall under that exemption. Um, mm. So uh, and yet he 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 refused to uh, swear allegiance to the uh, the emperor and was executed for that. So uh, he, so he may have beheaded uh, Jesus. I don't know what were the so it was the. <laughs> What were the charges against Jesus exactly? Like he was that he was claiming to be claiming to be the son t- of God or something. Is that, is that, so is that he was he was? I don't actually know. Fight for heresy, like or, heresy, um, yeah. Uh, under name. Jewish law, um, I don't know. Like, but I do. Possibly. I just find it so funny that you know there's such different characters in that you know Jesus obviously Christianity and everything took off, but then you have this Roman emperor who was like the establishment and then you read his works and his works are all about an individual on the back foot against the odds. And then you have Christianity on the other side, which is the same kind of a person against the odds against it really. Yeah. It it makes me wonder about the course of Western culture and history about how it could have been different in a sense. I don't know if that's just gibberish, but yeah, I think it's an interesting juxtaposition. I think Marcus Aurelius would have found a lot. I mean, the obvious thing to say is that many people have read the meditations and seen many echoes of Christianity in it. Mm. And that's not a coincidence because it's possible. Some people might claim that Stoicism was influenced by Christianity, but personally, I think it's more likely that Christianity was influenced by Stoicism. Um, You know, the the, the influence mainly runs that way because several of the church fathers had originally studied Stoicism and then they kind of turned against it, but nevertheless were influenced by ideas that they'd taken from it. And there's obviously language in the New Testament that sounds like like in the Gospel of John at the beginning where he talks about Logos. Anyone reading that is going to think, that sounds like you're talking about Stoicism because it sounds like a technical term derived from Heraclitean and and Stoic philosophy. Um, And there's many other things about the New Testament that, that sounds kind of Stoic. So I think Marcus Aurelius would have felt some affinity with Christianity, but the Romans, including Marcus Aurelius, also generally viewed the early Christians as fanatics and superstitious, um, basically. I mean, he mentions the Christians a couple of times. There's some debate about one of the passages. Um, There's a passage where he talks about some people... Marcus really says it's a virtue for someone to be willing to face death for, and mm. for noble reasons, but for somebody just to do it in order to show off or yeah. to to kind of uh, you know out of kind of brashness um, to martyr themselves that that's not virtuous. Um, mm. And I think there's uh, and it says like the Christians, but some scholars believe that that's an interpolation that's added later so some debate about how authentic that is but there's actually another passage 
where he says that early on in life he was taught not to pay any attention to charlatans and sorcerers and people that do exorcisms. Mm. He doesn't mention the Christians by name, but by implication, it it would only really be Christians that were conducting exorcisms. So he's kind of lumping them together with like the kind of woo-woo brigade and like uh, wizards and stuff like that. He's obviously... And would these have been Gnostic kind of Christians at this time or would the Gnostics Um, have been after that? Actually... Probably, but there may have been some Gnostics, but I th- from yeah. memory, my, my understanding is that the the one of the main Christian sects mm. um, in Rome at the time was Montanism, which is mm. um, a, an early Christian sect that, that was kind of eradicated or suppressed. So ironically, like suppressed by other Christians. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, like we, people talk about the Romans <laughs> oppressing Christianity, but the Christians the were doing quite a good job of oppressing each other. <laughs> yeah. like, and so the, the Montanists were excommunicated and, mm. and, and kind of ultimately, uh, you know, oppressed by uh, by other Christians for being heretics. Yeah. Um, but the, the Montanists, who were kind of like the Pentecostals, I think they spoke in tongues and stuff like that, if I remember mm. rightly. Like, so, but I mean, like the Gnostics would have seemed kind of strange compared to modern many modern christians yeah like and, uh, kind of yeah like they would have seemed maybe more mystical and stuff i mean yeah. we shouldn't assume that the early christians were like just like modern uh christians in the in the yeah. first world like you know it, it, yeah. you have to cut the romans some slack when they say that yeah. they, these guys seemed kind of like like wizards Unhinged. and you know superstitious <laughs> to them because they some yeah. of them were into some pretty way out stuff yeah um but I think if Marcus could have seen beyond that, he would have found things in Christianity also to empathize with. That would have been in common. Yeah, I've heard that Jungian psychology actually comes from Gnosticism as well. Yeah. That the basis of it yeah. is yeah, in totally. that early Jung was really into Gnostics. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting time. But um, I'm conscious here we've actually gone over the time. Um, so mm-hmm. what's next for you, Donald? What's up? I know you're doing Verismus the uh, graphic novel. Doing a graphic novel. I'm currently working on a biography also. Oh. So I'm doing this graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius, which we, we're just kind of putting the finishing touches to for mm. Macmillan or St. Martin's. And then I'm doing, I'm in the middle of writing a, a biography for Yale University Press of Marcus Aurelius nice. um, yeah. for a series. And then um Maybe I'm right. I may be writing a, a book about Socrates and maybe some other graphic novels. Oh, nice! That'd be really interesting. And I'm also working on a project here to maybe um, do something at the at Plato's Academy at the original location and to create a oh. center here for like That'd philosophy so and cool. event space and stuff. That'd be perfect for the trip to Athens. Have that set up mm-hmm. nicely. Yeah. <laughs> And do you ever think about writing prose? It was something that struck me um, how to think like a Roman emperor. It was the quality of the prose that you were writing. Um, it was something that, do you ever think about novels or anything like that? It was I, way better than uh, most nonfiction books that I would read. I don't know. I mean, weirdly, I didn't really want to be, well, I, I, I never really kind of planned to become a writer. Um, I've written oh, about yeah. five or six books now. I just kind of... <laughs> kind of stumbled into it um mm. when i was a kid i really wanted to be a writer and then i completely lost yeah. interest in it mm. and then I, I kind of found myself doing it for various yeah. reasons so i mean i'd kind of like to write a children's book maybe at some point yeah but i don't know if i'm I, I, i'm 
kind of uh, I've tied up in contracts for writing for about the next five years anyway. Like, yeah. So I'll do. I'm probably going to finish these books now. I'll just kill over and die or something. That'll be like. Yeah, that'll right. be. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I've, I'm not sure. I've got a novel in me. Like I'll probably make the title then. <laughs> yeah. and just sitting in the garden. On, like Socrates, anyway. Will be. Yeah. What would Donald do? We'll we'll keep you going as the the ideal sage after your death. We can keep you keep you holy. But um, I appreciate you talking to me today, Donald, and um, hopefully Pleasure. we can meet up soon. Yep, yeah, yeah because good to see you come to Athens. That'd be nice. Whoa. I hope you enjoyed that podcast and the chat with Donald. You should obviously go and check out his work. You can find him on Instagram, Donald J. Robertson. You can also find him on YouTube, Donald Robertson. And 100% go and purchase any of his books. are brilliant. Stoicism and Happiness, uh, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, Philosophy of CBT. Uh, look him up on Amazon. Get yourself into it. You know, it's, yeah... It's the start of a beautiful new journey for you into the world of stoicism and mental health. If you like the podcast and the conversations, hit that follow button on Spotify and stay in touch. Hope you have a good day. Bye.